All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Spencer Bailey, and I'm here with my co-host, you've got a friend in her, Chelsea Burnett. I was wondering what you were going to do to start the episode. That's that's the best thing I could have come up with. That's awesome. Hi, Spencer. Hello, Chelsea. Uh, Well, that leads us to today's spotlight topic, coming together. I wanted to do a series on movies where people set aside their differences and come together for for whatever reason. Uh, we're doing too much fighting mm-hmm. these days. Everywhere I look, I see it all over the place. And I just think that we can learn a lot from, from movies. Case in point, Chelsea, uh, this past weekend, uh, Lacey had never seen Top Gun. And I don't know what came over her, but she goes, let's watch Top Gun. And what happens to that film? Iceman and Maverick setting their differences aside, but he he can be his wingman anytime. Perfect example. It always comes back around to Top Gun, doesn't it? Of course. Uh, well, before we do that, I want to touch on a real quick news story. Uh, we're going to continue, I guess, the sad news stories for two episodes in a row, but we lost Meatloaf this past week. Uh, I know he was primarily a musical artist, but he did have kind of an interesting acting career as well. He did. Of course, I think, depending on who you are, maybe you remember him more from Rocky Horror, but uh, I think for us, playing Robert Paulson, Bob, and Fight Club, maybe. Uh, what what do you what is the first one you think of, Chelsea? The first one I think of is uh, he plays the hyper-conservative, strict father to Jack Black yes. and Tenacious D in The Pick of Destiny. Yeah. I was so glad you brought that up. <laughs> uh, my sister and I, oh my God, we can watch that opening, the, the Kickapoo. Uh, we can sing the song and and watch the scene o- over and over again, never get sick of it. Well, you know, it's fun. I remember that movie came out and like I rented it. And I didn't think it was that great, but like the more I watched it, the funnier it got and the oh. funnier it got. And now it's, I, I love it. I, I appreciate it though, from the first time I saw it, all the cameos and that meatloaf cameo was just off the charts. And he comes out and it's like, I can still sing you guys. And man, he could still belt it. He can. He can. Talk about someone who does not sound at all like what you would expect just looking at the man. So, but he truly proved us all wrong. We used to listen to him sometimes in the house. My dad was a a big fan of, especially like bad out of hell. But I remember a few years ago, I went out to a birthday gathering at one of those like karaoke places where you can get like a private room. And my friend, Irina, we were in a big group and she was like, all I want is just somebody to sing paradise by the dashboard light with me and i said irena i know every word of that song (laughs) so so we sang it together it was great but uh, i also wanted to say in the early 2000s there's this really forgettable movie that came out called formula 51 it starred uh, samuel jackson and robert carlisle um it's not great but i always like it would rerun on like hbo and stars and stuff and i always had fun watching it it's kind of an amusing movie uh but meatloaf was like the villain in that movie and i always remember from that too but Certainly Fight Club, which he's just actually quite good in. He kind of really pulls at your heartstrings, doesn't he? And it Well, especially because he goes from, you know, this kind of sad, pathetic guy to getting confidence to being just one of the terrorist fellows. <laughs> just one of those terrorists. Uh, but Rocky Horror, you know, I'm not a, I've said it before, I'm not a big musical person. 
you can't really deny Rocky Horror. Yeah, it has such a cult status. He's he's the best part to me. I remember I remember the first the only the only time I've seen Rocky Horror. Like out of all the musical acts, Meatloaf was the one where I was like, okay, this is great. Busting through it. on that motorcycle. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, smaller, smaller story from from the legends we lost last week, but and, you know, it, it seemed like he was. Not sudden for him and his family, but he died of some kind of disease and apparently was um, uh, updating people over YouTube, always ending with a positive message. And Has it come out that it was COVID? I was reading, I mean, Howard Stern has been making some comments about it just because Meatloaf was very outspoken about being anti the vaccine and anti-mask and I, I whatever it may be, I mean... It's unfortunate that that was the stance he took and kind of is like, I feel like it's an interest, interesting timing for the theme of our episode and then to talk about this because, and we're not really a political podcast at all, but, um, and I'm not a COVID expert by any means, but I just, I, I, it's it, this, I mean, we are a very divided country because of differing ideas about the vaccine and um and how the pandemic is being handled so i don't know whatever can be learned from this um, i i don't think it was covid because in one of his youtube videos he talks about going to a specialist and feeling like he was alone but then noticing that other people in the room also you know feel less alone because they, they're sharing the same problem with him so it didn't seem like it was covid but uh that was certainly my first thought the, the day he died i didn't know he was uh, super anti-mask and vax. Um, but my first thought was just COVID, just his age and what's happening in the world. I just assumed it was COVID, but it doesn't seem like it was. Yeah. No, I, I mean, either way, it's taken too soon. And um, I, I, I do... Yeah, it's just it's such a crazy time we live in. I'm, I'm actually very grateful we're doing this episode because it's nice to talk, talk about what unites us and what can bring us together during times like this. So, yeah. Yeah. On a side note, while we're on the subject, we also lost Louis Anderson, um, funny comedian. And we'll, as far as movies go, we'll always remember him from, uh, coming to America with his hopes and dreams of becoming a manager of a McDowell's. He will also be missed. Gosh. All these deaths, and it's like breaking news to me. I feel like I've been living under a rock. I don't know. I didn't know about meatloaf until you brought it up. I also had meatloaf for dinner tonight. I wasn't really <laughs> thinking about that, that we were going to be talking about him, but I could still smell it in my hair and on my clothes. <laughs> All right, Chels. Well, what a fitting way to say goodbye to a, to a legend. Uh, okay, well, we're going to take a quick little break, and we're going to come back with the spotlight topic of the episode. Welcome back. So, Chelsea, I, I told you, I think at the end of the year, I, I wanted to start the year off with this episode uh, because I'm just so tired of everybody fighting all the goddamn time about everything. I mean, we fight all the time on here, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> but I, it's, it's just everywhere. And I, quite frankly, I don't know what everybody's so outraged about, to be honest with you. And here's the real thing I want to say to all of you. How are you not all exhausted? I mean, everybody is just... 
it's like you're always looking for something to be pissed off about. And I, I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn for work for my for my job, my my main job. And I'm just stunned at even on there. The way people talk to each other, call each other like like completely cussing each other out, call each other idiots and on LinkedIn. And I'm like, first of all, why are we talking about this? And two, I can see where you work. Wow. I know to have brought it to like even to that. I mean, I guess LinkedIn is technically a social media platform, but you think it would have a certain level of professionalism that would keep people away. But yeah, just is a sign of the sadly a sign of the times. I think you said, aren't you tired? I think that maybe some of the problem is like pe- people are tired. They're burnt out. They feel we just... Uh, it's easy to turn other people into scapegoats instead of looking at, you know, the larger issues that have led us to this point where we feel used up and taken advantage of and downtrodden. And it's just, I mean, for us, as sad as the world may seem right now, there is a lot to celebrate. And there is a lot of, um, I'm trying not to sound like Miss America, but like, (laughs) I think there, there is, there is a lot that we more than what like the media or social media would have us believe that there's a lot more overlap between people and our uh, morals and ethics and ideas and the things we love and tr- cherish like than maybe we would expect even if one person may say they are Republican and one mer- person may say they're Democrat they might be surprised at how much overlap there is and what they uh, hold true to their heart. I don't know. No, that's well said. I mean, that's one of the things I want to say. And by the way, everyone, if you're if you're wondering what podcast you've just stumbled upon, don't worry. We're tying this to movies. It's okay. <laughs> but that's one of the main things I definitely wanted to bring up was we all have more in common with each other <laughs> than we think. And we certainly have more in common with each other than, shall we say, the people who have more power than we do. So I just think that we need to stop sometimes and Pay attention to the things we have in common and not so much the things we don't have in common. And that being said, with movies, you know, I think, Chelsea and I, you you and I talked about this uh, on the first episode. But the only reason we like movies so much is because of how powerful movies can be and they can make us see a situation maybe we never thought about or make us empathize with a certain person that we didn't think we were able to um, hear a story that... We wouldn't have otherwise. And I think that movies are a perfect example of how we don't need to fight so much and we can overcome a lot of this just vitriol and just hostility and anger we have towards each other right now. It's just, we could do better. Yeah, I I really like what you said about um, what we discussed in our first ever episode and why we love movies and what power there is in 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 movies and in sharing them with others and also i mean the the first movie we want to touch on um in our spotlight topic i think is an example of a movie that isn't really made nowadays or if it is made it's kind of seen with a little bit of side-eyeing for like oh you know they're they're just going for that cornball like factor and i i I'm kind of sad that movies like this don't get the treatment that they used to because I feel like they were more movies that like 
people would, all people from a lot of different walks of life would rally behind. So I hope I'm making sense of what I'm saying there and probably make more sense to listeners once you know what movie we're talking about. Well, let's just start there. And I think our first choice is a little on the nose, but uh, it was just too easy you had of a to pick. do it. <laughs> so our first pick is Remember the Titans. It, it's such a fun movie. I, it's a little hokey. I know it is. It's a little, it's a little too, you know, perfectly worked out in the end, but it's just so rewatchable. It's so entertaining. And Denzel is just, uh, just lights out. Oh, absolutely. And that soundtrack, I have to say, I was watching it from the other room and Micah like knew instantly what movie I was watching. He didn't even know what I put on. He just heard the songs and he's like, are you watching Remember the Titans in there? So uh, it goes to show truly how iconic that soundtrack was. Um, I, w- I would love to know what the budget was uh, for the music rights. But um, but it's like Forrest Gump. I mean, it was used to, I think, a really great effect in setting the scene there at the, like the, the early 70s. I mean, the, the true so the true story, the school was already integrated when this coach came in. Uh, I know that to be a fact. And I also know he was not as <laughs> he was not as beloved as he is in, by the end of the movie. They all thought he was a dick. So, so yeah, the movie did got folks. I hope you're sitting down. Disney took some liberties with this movie. But what a great way of showing how people can come together through one of the most high tension times in the in the history of the country, particularly in a part of the country where it was the worst. Yeah, it did. I I think it they for dramatic effects like those town hall meetings that were called with all the white people in town to talk about how furious they were that their white coach was being replaced by a black head coach and um it 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 did it painted a picture set the scene well, I, I think with all types of sports movies, there it, it, there's already a certain, I don't know, uh, the the dr- drama is already kind of oomphed up a few notches because of that. But um, I uh, I what I what I like from the get go in terms of the tension between Denzel Washington and why am I forgetting? the other coach's name coach I'm, yost coach yost the actor do you know the actor's name off the top of your head well of course i do chelsea his name is will Patton. will Patton, thank you the 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 tension between those two actors uh or those two characters obviously the race relations is a huge factor but it it more seems to play upon there's a lot of like male ego and pride that actually is uh is at stake there i think that's really highlighted um later on when the team has 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 fully integrated and um they're in the middle of a game and denzel washington pulls one of the black players out and then um Petey. yeah who's played so by donald Faison, who's who's so great he told and, him not to fumble <laughs> don't fumble the ball and, you know, and then here comes uh, Will Patton, who, you know, encourages him to go in in a new position. And it kind of undermines Denzel Washington. But I, I felt that, like, I, I, I like that they didn't go for all the obvious notes of what would 
be causing these two coaches to fight. Um, yeah. Uh, what did, what did you kind of think about looking at also the structure of when they sent the players off to that camp and how the, the white players came to understand the black players and vice versa? Well, sure. And I, I think that's what was done so well. And you were just talking about the coaches and that's where I wanted to start too, because Coach Yost, played by Will Patton, is the head coach when Coach Boone comes in, uh, played by Denzel. And he basically is ousted as head coach for this black head coach, which is, you know, already a problem in itself for the citizens of that town. Denzel recognizes he's still talented and asks him to stay on as a defensive coordinator. And Coach Yost has to set his pride aside. It's not just about the racial thing. It's pride there. He has to set that aside to come stay on with the team and contribute. So that's already where they start. On top of disagreeing on how to coach the players, Coach Yost thinks he's being too hard on them when they go off to the camp. But then I also like you're asking about the players. I like how they try a bunch of stuff that doesn't work. Like they make them hang out <laughs> together individually and rotate who they hang out with, and it's not working. Like nobody's, you know, Ryan Gosling, big country fan. <laughs> You know, and the other guy's not having it. So they do all this stuff that doesn't work. And particularly Bertier and Julius, mm. who are the two, like, captains of the team. And I think it's interesting that Bertier, the, who's the white person, is, like, trying to connect with Julius and just doesn't know how. And he's basically got this attitude of, like, come on, man. You're really good. We should be better than this. And he's like, I'm not worried about any of y'all. I'm going to worry about me. And it's not until they have a connection on the field and Bertier comes at him and starts to celebrate like, yeah, we are the same unit. We're the defense. You all right, Big Petey? You all right? You really stuck him, Campbell. Yeah, I love me a little contact, Petey. This is left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. Strong side. Left side. And they connect, and that's that's what starts their friendship. And then I love when Julius goes to his house and meets Bertier's mom, mm -hmm. you know, and that tension gets gets laid off. And then at the end, you know, Bertier's girlfriend walks up and shakes Julius's hand while everyone's yelling at her to come back. I mean, that all that those the small little connect human connections in the movie, you know, should not be discounted in in lieu of just the players and the team coming together. Totally. I, I I liked what I think rang the most true uh, between those two guys was their uh, their uh, ideology about defense, like you were saying, and like the the uh, the passion that they had for the game there while um, while maybe they were coming at it from two different angles in the beginning, they were able to find the commonalities um, and uh and, you know, there I, I think the other kind of characters who are sprinkled in um, for uh, to bring in a little bit more levity to the film. Sunshine. Um, yeah, sunshine. Um, as well as uh, the more heavy set guy, which I feel bad. I'm I don't remember his name. Um, he's been right in now everything. He's in he's, another movie. He's in another movie <laughs> playing a very different character uh, that we're going to talk about. But uh, you know, they kind of gave it that that Disney little that I don't know that Disney little charm to it um, that uh, that I, I I thought was 
was very sweet and and delightful. But well, they also had the daughters. You know, mm-hmm. you know, one is a tomboy, the other one's a little princess, and they don't really see eye to eye on anything. But by the end of the movie, they're friends. It's just like the whole movie is about a town full of people who didn't want anything to do with each other coming together for various reasons, putting their differences aside. All that being said, let it be known, Ryan Gosling was an absolute detriment to his team. (laughs) And that's why he was pulled out of the game. Ryan. I also just kept thinking he was so like, I feel like he was at his scrawniest and he didn't come across as a football player to me. Oh, wasn't but, he coming uh, off that young Hercules show too? Like, oh, yeah. How are you going to be Hercules? I, I I wasn't hating. I mean, he's such a cutie and it, it, it was still great to see him in something. But um, yeah, I feel like the father that really talked him up about what a great player he was. I'm like, I'm not necessarily seeing all the things that his dad's saying about him. But like, he's a great dancer, great singer, but... So uh, remember, remember the Titans. Since, since you know this is a movie podcast, we still like to talk about its merits as a film. So much fun, so rewatchable. I've seen it a million times, and I will always watch it. If I catch it in the middle, I'm going to watch the rest. Seventy three percent of Rotten Tomatoes, no Oscar nominations. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I don't feel like often those. Uh, the, there was that those string of uh, sports related feel good Disney movies that I I think are in a class all their own. And really great. I'm thinking of like the rookie as um, with Dennis Quaid. Did you ever see that one? Part of it. I've never seen the whole thing. Yeah. That was one they would show a lot in school for us. But um, yeah, eh, I, I guess can see why it wasn't nominated for any Oscars. But that also Oscars aren't the barometer for everything, if it's good or not. Agreed. Um, but I think you had something to say about this movie in relation to the next I one. D- yes. Okay. So. What I thought was a, you know, a, a special note in in Remember the Titans in the way it, because it is a very like male heavy film, and rightfully so. It's about you know male football players in high school, and there are the there are the daughters, and there's the and Kate Bosworth is the girl the the racist girlfriend. But I, 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 I feel that the Remember the Titans in the way that it um, captured ma- masculine bonding and masculine friendship, um, it, I think that in some ways the next film we're going to talk about, Bridesmaids, kind of is the flip side of that for women in the commonalities in female friendships and relationships. Um, as I'll try and like unpack this some more. I mean, I think most people listening are familiar with bridesmaids and what the, um, what the topic, what, what that movie is about, but I'll do a quick refresher that Kristen Wiig and Maya Rudolph, uh, are best friends from childhood. Maya Rudolph is getting married. Kristen Wiig is a bit aimless and, you know, the movie kicks off with her and, uh, having sex with, John Hamm is playing a total just douchebag. He is so goddamn hilarious in that movie. <laughs> yeah. I think and everyone was so I I I believe Mad Men had premiered at that point. Oh, so he was that's, deep in the middle of yeah, Mad Men, which so, is what made it so funny. Yeah, it, everyone really I think audiences really responded to him acting out in this way. Through the course of Maya Rudolph's wedding planning, 
And she asked Kristen Wiig, you know, to be her maid of honor, which only makes sense. They're childhood best friends. Here comes Helen, played by Rose Byrne, who is um, uh, Maya Rudolph's fiance's boss's wife. So they've been spending a lot of time together. Helen comes from certain means and can make certain things happen. The typical things like a maid of honor is expected to do and plan and and there's, you know, there's awkwardness from the get-go of the two friends meeting and at, at the at the um, engagement party. And hijinks ensue and there are feelings that are hurt as the movie goes on, of course, with a lot of jokes in between. And I mean, Kristen Wiig is, she really carried like so much of the comedy in this with also a great performance from uh Melissa McCarthy, Melissa McCarthy. Who, yeah she I is think like she the funniest came, person in the movie yeah I think she ended up with an Oscar nomination she did for this role and A very rare comedy yeah Oscar nomination I really responded to the way even though um again everything has to be played for a lot more dramatic effect because it's it's a movie um I think that what rings so true is the uh the when women can finally start to find commonalities or common ground, I think the the movie captured those moments so well. Like I'm thinking about um, uh, on the scenes on the airplane between the other two bridesmaids that are talking about their sex lives together. And I'm not saying these aren't things that men talk about too, but um, I think there are just certain men ways that women never talk about sex. <laughs> We're always respectful. I don't know (laughs) what you're talking about. (laughs) I just found it to be super charming and not forced at all. And even um, when it comes down to uh, to Helen and or I, I I am the worst, and I really need to take note of character names because I always just refer to the actors. For some reason, I remembered Helen, but Annie. Thank you. So uh, Annie and Helen, Lillian, and Lillian is is Maya Rudolph, Mrs. Paul Thomas Anderson. All right. Um, When when Helen and Annie Rose Byrne and Kristen Wiig do come together at the end of the movie after a lot of push and pull over, you know. Who who's going to be the best friend? Essentially, um, I like that they're not. It's not like everything is made up and everything's perfect again. And and they're going to now be like a trio of best friends. It's more just that they they were able to see a glimpse into each other's lives, like with Helen seeing the relationship Annie has with the cop. And which I will get into some issues I have with him and that performance, but uh, you will not badmouth Chris O'Dowd on this podcast. I cause. I don't know if it's Chris O'Dowd's fault or the writing, but I will get to that. I'll circle back around to that real fast. But um, I I think in in that scene where Kristen Wiig is better understanding how lonely Rose Byrne is in her marriage and in her life, and then Rose Byrne seeing Kristen Wiig and kind of. The, the sadness in the relationship between her and her trying to make amends with this cop. I just felt there was like some real like feminine intuition happening there. Well, but um, I think a key and- thing there too is with them being the big, the main point of contention in this movie is Annie and Helen. And 
where I think that comes from mostly is Annie's insecurities. And that's in terms of the topic we're talking about, you know, that's what it, there is to focus on is that sometimes our insecurities are causing it. And it's got nothing to do with what we think we're mad about. And I think you're right. I think she was insecure about everything that's happened to her. She's intimidated by Helen. Mm-hmm. And to your point, when she saw her as what she really is, as this lonely person, it made that intimidation come down. And then she got sympathy for her. And she maybe saw a little bit of herself because she was also extremely lonely. They, honestly, yeah, they could relate a lot in that in that moment. Thank you for putting that a lot more succinctly. Um, but yes, uh, I I think insecurity was totally something wanted to touch on about uh, about the 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 biggest rift I think in 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 their uh, relationship between those two characters. And what I uh, um, having been a part of many weddings, having been have my own wedding and gotten married myself I think um there is like a real magical thing that can happen when all the people that the bride and groom um surround themselves with like do rally together even if they can't quite relate or they wouldn't necessarily have been friends outside of this um instance when they do come together for the sake of um the other people they love, I think they're, it's, it's kind of like this lightning in a bottle sort of feeling, but, and I, I liked how, how it was portrayed in this movie. Now onto Chris O'Dowd and not his fault, but God, he's, I don't know if it was cause it was the unrated version I watched and there were just more scenes. What a fucking whiner. I could not get over what she so did. Everybody listening to the podcast, that, I have been waiting for Chelsea to do this I, about something. I <laughs> was so irritated by his character. I don't remember the first time seeing this. I thought he was charming. I was like, so maybe it's just the unrated cut that did him so dirty. I was like, are you seriously not going to forgive her? What she did was not even that bad. Like I, I kept recounting. I'm like, what, what did she really like? She didn't want to make. She didn't want to bake after she had sex with you, which was already really cool that you got to have sex with her, and now you're just you're pouting and you're having your little pity party because she didn't bake something for you and it didn't go over well. I was really very irritated by that. I've been waiting for this, like. <laughs> Chelsea's always a little, little too, little too timid. Let it out. <laughs> oh, wait for it. like maybe one day she'll just get. I'll say something. And she'll just call me a shithead on the mic or something. I don't know. Well, just don't ever, don't ever hold a grudge against a woman because they didn't want to bake something for you after they've had sex with you and they've already told you that baking is a sensitive topic and don't make it all about yourself. There you go. Well, yeah, a much more minor. Um, point of contention in Bridesmaids, but still a poignant one. Um, and what a great movie. I, I'll watch Bridesmaids anytime. It always cracks me up. Melissa McCarthy is just, I didn't even know who she was before Bridesmaids. But I was like, who is this person? She is like completely She's knocking out force. of the park. She's such a force, yeah. And oh, I forgot how funny the final and the ending credit scene is between her and her real life husband but the air marshal who she ends up falling in love with in the movie their their sex scene with the huge sandwich and like the huge foot or hoagie or whatever it was great anyway bridesmaids 90 percent around tomatoes nominated for best screenplay and melissa mccarthy nominated for best supporting actress neither of which won oh i mean 
so happy that screenplay got a nomination, though. That's great. And Melissa McCarthy kind of would have loved to have seen her career maybe go in a slightly different direction after the all the attention she got from this movie. But I feel like she never quite found a part that measured up to her true talents. But Well, eh. like, she started making more comedies, and everybody was hoping she'd have another Bridesmaids performance, but none of the movies were that good. And then she tried to do a couple serious movies, and th- those weren't good. So. Oh, did you see Can You Ever Forgive Me? Because that was amazing. I forgot about I that. That was highly recommend that being more on the serious side, but she is able to stretch some there. She's flexing some comedy muscles in that, but it's definitely a more like subdued performance. And it's, it's like a a black comedy or dark comedy, but yeah, um, I definitely recommend. Can you forgive me? Nice. Well, our next movie on our list, we're going to go much more lighthearted for everyone. American history X. (laughs) Um, this was probably the first movie that popped in my head when I started thinking of movies to have this idea because the contention is so stark um, uh, in this in this movie. Um, of course, if you've never seen it, Edward Norton is a uh, Nazi skinhead who has a long history of racism, um, and it, the movie cuts to the from the present to the past, uh, the past being black and white, and it shows... Uh, his participation in a, in a Nazi group, um, a horrific thing that he does and some prison time that he, that he has to do for that, for that terrible thing he commits. Um, going back to present day, he's out of prison. He's denouncing the Nazism, telling his old crew he wants nothing to do with them and trying to save his little brother played by Edward Furlong from following in his footsteps. Um, the main thing I wanted to point out about this movie in relation to the topic. So he's a hardcore racist, kills a, kills a black man. Uh, kills a, two black men. Oh, you're right. Kills two black men. One in, one in a famously, famously excessively violent uh, scene. Goes to prison and gets paired up for work with a black man named Lamont. And just through gradual talking gradual interaction he be, starts to become friends with Lamont and I mean when he first meets him he's looking at him funny, funny he doesn't want to talk to him and then it kind of cuts to a few hours into the into the future Edward Norton is like leaning in and they're talking about sports mm. and it's just like a totally different vibe and you just realize he's never interacted with somebody who wasn't you know really interacted with a black person. Unless it was in a confrontational way. Exactly. Yeah. But not really like interact with them. And I don't think a lot of times that's the problem, especially in this country. Our country is so big, uh, like geographically. There's so many people, but we all kind of tend to, f- whether we grew up there and never left or we go there on our own, everybody kind of finds these pockets where everyone kind of thinks the same way they do. And that's kind of what happens in this movie. You see a flashback where Edward Norton's character is a child and he's sitting at the table with his father, played by the father from Boy Meets World, which is super weird. Uh, and you see that's where the racism came from to begin with. Mm-hmm. And when it's when you're in that bubble and that's all you know, a lot of hatred come out. And I know I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying anything new here, but it, the, it, the movie highlights this. And I, and I realize this is an extreme example, 
But if a hardcore racist can interact with someone he didn't think he was going to like and become friends with that person, you can go talk to your neighbor because you voted for different people. Man, I, I, I stole a TV, all right? So you stole a TV? What's embarrassing about that? I stole a TV from a store that was right next door to a donut shop, all right? I run out, the store owner's running behind me yelling, bam, I run into three cops, all right? <laughs> oh, see? See, I told you it was embarrassing. You laughed. Wait a second, wait a second. It's, yeah, I think the American History X has a, it's, it's in, it strikes an interesting balance where it's like um, it's kind of preachy or professorial in a way, talking about race relations, at the same time being ex- extremely not anything that you would expect. Like you, it wouldn't get as gritty or this intense or violent um, ever, and it, you wouldn't ever have hear a teacher telling you about these things that are at least not in like an undergrad situation. But I, I felt that, especially in the conversations um, with the um, uh, Sweeney is his name, who's played by Avery Brooks. He's the, he comes across as kind of like as a principal of the school is that who's talking to Edward Fur- Furlong and um, he knew Edward Norton bef- when he was still in high school and it, before he had turned into like a full fledged skinhead and was trying to, you know, in his own way, save the brother and, and teach him the error of his ways. And I think I wanted to highlight the actor, I wanted to say that I thought Avery Brooks did a really masterful job with like using the script in a way and like delivering those lines that could have very, if not in with the right performance, like may have just seemed too convenient or like too teach. I don't know, just like too after school special maybe. Uh, and it had like some real weight behind it and you well kind of, uh, Yeah. Thank you. No, for I know exactly what you mean. By the way, I just want to take a moment. I love Avery Brooks. Um, I think he's a masterful actor who did not get enough big chances. He was originally, I'll always remember him fondly, of Hawk as Hawk on Spencer for Hire. Wonder why I used to watch that show as a kid. <laughs> of course, went on to do one of the Star Trek shows, but he was always an amazing actor. And it's a shame he didn't get uh, a lot of big parts. But this might have been the biggest most rel like important party ever had yeah yeah he i i really couldn't take my eyes off him uh in any scene he was in and if you're thinking to yourself well this is a movie and this kind of situation isn't realistic i encourage you all to look up daryl davis and find the documentary about daryl davis there's also been articles about him he's done a ted talk he is a black man he's a jazz pianist he's an incredible piano player but he has made it his mission in his life for decades to meet with, talk to uh, KKK members and other white supremacists. And over the years, he has befriended and then converted like something like 200 KKK members who have denounced their old ways, are now friends with him. It's really a remarkable story. I think I may have heard something about this man before, but I didn't know about a documentary. I will look for that. If we want to talk a little bit about just the filmmaking itself, like I, this 
really the the use of black and white in the flashbacks um and the also just the way the camera work is in this movie I, it was very very unique to me i mean i was telling spencer before we started recording this is a movie that i put off for many many years ever watching because it was just something that had been built up at, in terms of how like upsetting it was and um i was just i I yeah the curb stomping scene I was very put off at the thought of having to see something like that and I just looked away when I watched the movie you know recently and and I think we we were saying that it's more really the movie is more alluding to it it's not necessarily very like graphically that violent but but it's the the what is really graphic in the movie is like the true hatred uh between uh that the the skinheads carry Absolutely. Uh, for, and I, I think that the, the director really got that uh, that point across. Um, and it um, I, I never I don't ever feel like the scenes, the, the truly heightened, truly racist hate hatred scenes like are that heavy handed. If there is there's one knock against the movie, I would give it is like there's maybe one too many scenes that take place around that dinner table that just seem a little too convenient. Like it's like this is just the way we have to stage it where these are the like pivotal times that like led the characters to the point where they are in their lives. But um I, that that would just be my 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 one thing that kind of sometimes made me like smirk. I was like, God, like at the kitchen table again. This is this is where <laughs> the shit's going down. All right. Yeah, I, but you're right. Overall, really well made movie, well respected movie. Uh, the editing is fantastic, um, but the, the choice to go black and white um, to color is, is brilliant. Um, if you've never seen it, it's it's a heavy watch, but it's a really great movie. Uh, 83% uh, Rotten Tomatoes, only Oscar nomination, Edward Norton for lead actor. And that was the infamous year that Robert Benini won for some weird reason oh, over. When not, he climbed over the aisles. When he oh won. my God. Not only did he beat Edward Norton, but he beat Tom Hanks for saving Private Ryan. And it's just like, what the hell happened that year? But anyway. You know, I, I, I think Edward Norton gets, as of late, I don't know. I feel like I've been hearing a little, like, I guess he pissed off a lot of people through the years and he's kind of... Oh, yeah. Of a, he comes in and tries to rewrite every he, movie. Yeah. And and he... Um, I I think you can really see his talents um, on the screen in this movie, especially when he has to play the softer side um, of, of when he is released from prison. I th- Those are my favorite moments of him, not only just because he's more likable because he's not a skinhead anymore, but um, I I just think to be able to play the transition into a, a softened person, his heart's being softened and do it in a, a believable and not a, like corny or cloying way, I, I, I think shows... I mean, he he was the real deal. He's oh, he's a great actor. He's an exceptional actor. And you remember hearing in the early days, a lot of people compared him to Brando. Uh, people thought he was going to be the new Brando, and like you said, he just kind of was difficult to work with. And he still gets good parts here and there, but uh, I think his career could have been much more impressive if he was just a little easier to work with. Well, let's take uh, one little quick break, and we'll get back to our last two movies. Okay. All right, Chelsea, 
Time to get serious. What's our next movie? We've got Pixar's Toy Story, which, <laughs> uh, who'd have thought we'd go from American History X to Toy Story, but that's what you're getting here on the marquee spotlight. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to draw a connection <laughs> here between the two. Well, I think um, it was all the racism uh, that Andy's mother was spewing throughout the movie. That oh, I think that's a nice transition. Oh, my God. Effect. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when Woody curb stomp buzz it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, wow, has this animation not aged well? No, it has not, man. Especially when you watch the new Toy Stories, like mm -hmm. directly comparing the characters over the years. It's rough. But that being said, what a great script, what a great cast to carry that movie into the 21st century and to make it still as rewatchable as it is. Um, I don't even necessarily have to be even looking at the screen. Like, I know at first that's what made Toy Story so popular was at the time, the technology, the graphics were so cutting edge that that's what drew a lot of people to the theater to see it. But um, I think its legacy is the is the story and the characters. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I was old enough to remember like when it came out, and we were we were absolutely blown away. I, I mean, I I just remember the trailer alone blowing us. But when we saw it in theater. Um, it was just you were just enthralled with it because of the way it looked, but. To your point, the the quotable lines, the the depth of the story, um, all that stuff just made it an absolute phenomenon. I mean, the the money it made was just unreal. Yeah, and it's we'll get right into talking about why I wanted to discuss Toy Story for this this episode because you know there upon a new rewatch of of Toy Story, like I didn't I forgot just exactly how dramatic. The issues between Buzz Lightyear and Woody, um, like how that all plays out between uh, the rest of the toys in uh, in their world and uh, the way Woody is kind of cast out by the rest of them because of a really bad spur of the moment decision he makes that kind of is like a slight against Buzz that you goes mean attempted wrong. murder? Attempted murder, yeah. And Mr. Potato Head really has it out for Woody. <laughs> but, um, Don Rickles, baby. Oh, yeah. You can hold a grudge. Um, I, I, It's kind of amazing that the... And I guess this just goes into what makes Pixar so special, but uh, that the stakes felt so high. And we're just looking... We're talking about toys here. But I think what is so the themes that are so universal is again, we've talked a lot about insecurity, but I think that comes up again here with, um, with Woody, uh, who has been living the good life being the number one favorite toy of Andy's. And then here comes this shiny, bright new toy Buzz Lightyear, you know, uh, advertised everywhere as a slick commercial and all, all the, you know, all the kids at the birthday party are so excited for buzz. And, um, I think we've all been there with the fear of getting replaced somehow or being second best and, um, Woody and Tom Hanks with his, with his voice performance. Um, I, you know, it's, 
he really shows the shameful side of what you can do when you're backed into a corner like that and you you feel like you're you're uh you you feel threatened well threatened is the word i wrote down and that's how you we can pull this back to the topic and and, and real people is sometimes they're not getting along to anger. That's what it's about. You feel threatened by someone. There's nothing to do with them. It's something about you. And in Woody's case, he was immediately threatened and it made him view Buzz in completely out of emotion. Mm-hmm. And he never took the time to think about the situation more or see how to build a relationship with Buzz uh, to still get what he wanted, which was to make him realize he was a toy. And it wasn't until he gets what he wants and Buzz does realize he's just a toy and breaks down that Woody now has empathy for him and very awkwardly tries to connect with him, even though Buzz is checked out at this point. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, that, that, that's how it's trying to understand Buzz from the beginning could have, could have helped build a bond earlier on. Totally. And I think that that was like, that, that was their biggest problem was like, Buzz was essentially programmed to not understand that he was a toy and he doesn't care about Andy because it's just it's just not in his um, makeup uh, to care. And uh, and that is so foreign to to Woody. And it's like I think what pisses Woody off the most is that Buzz just it can't he it won't get through to him like how important Andy is. Like that's what really bonds the toys together is their love for Andy right? and their and- place in his home. And Buzz is such an outsider. I mean, they, all the rest of the toys admire him because of all of the things I just said about him. Uh, and He's shiny uh, and new, shiny and new, but, but Woody, you know, because he feels the most threatened by him uh, is also, you know, frustrated that he can't connect with this new toy because they just truly do not see eye to eye. You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear, you're, a, uh, you're an action figure! You are a child's plaything! You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. In any way. I don't think they really start seeing eye to eye until they make it to um, the, it's like the gas station scene or leading right up into the pizza place. And that's when they're kind of beginning to have some common ground. Um, and Buzz is kind of finally starting to figure it out. But um, like I have some empathy for Woody. Buzz is frustrating because he's freaking living in his own world <laughs> of sure. his own making uh, or another of a um, toys, toy creators making, but, uh, uh, it's, uh, but still, uh, Woody, um, Woody does some pretty shady things. Well, you bring up Andy though. And that's, that's kind of the con- common thing in most of the movies we talked about was there's something unifying there. And it, sometimes it's just caring about a person, you know, bridesmaids, it was caring about mm-hmm. Lillian mm-hmm. was a unifier. And now this is caring about Andy as the unifier. And that's, again, what we've t- started this episode off with. We have more in common than we think. Remember the it's, Titans caring about football exactly. or the, su- yeah, the success of the team. Yeah. So if you don't focus on what you have or what don't have in common and focus more on what you do have in common, look what can happen. Mm-hmm. Perfectly said. So, of course, Toy Story, 100% Rotten Tomatoes. It was nominated for Best Song, Best Score, and Best Screenplay. It did not win any of those, but it won a Special Achievement Award uh, 
for having such revolutionizing animation. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I would love to say and something that uh, just I still marvel at was how scary they made Sid's house in that. Like, it's kind of crazy that they could still make it like scary enough for kids, but like to that those those demented toys still haunt my dreams. But like. It was, yeah, the the universal scare appeal of Sid's house. Uh, my, I tip my hat to that. They they, uh, that was a real achievement. <laughs> no, the whole movie was. I mean, it's 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 just one of the most important movies of all time, and it's super watchable. It's always great. Uh, of course, mm-hmm. Toy Story. So that brings us to our last movie, and that of course is the nineteen fifty seven. Classic, one of the greatest movies ever made, 12 Angry Men. Uh, Chelsea, before this, when was the last time you'd watch this movie? It was in, it was for a class, I think, probably uh, in high school. Uh, yeah, we watched it this weekend and, and I'd seen it a couple times, but uh, Lacey sat and watched it with me and she was completely enthralled. And it ended, she was, you know, what a great movie. It's one of those great examples of a movie that was previously a stage play, but the movie doesn't feel like a stage play. Yeah. Um, and what an incredible achievement to have one group of characters in one room for an hour and a half, and you are glued to every moment. Absolutely. And to, uh, in just a few short lines that each juror is given, um, that you you can, yeah, you they've painted a picture enough for you to to empathize with with each one or to to care about uh each one and um i sorry i should have said i did rewatch it for the podcast i i'm not going off of my high school knowledge but that was the last oh, that's time what, that's I, what I said okay i said before this all right cool i'm like did i oh, oh no did i screw up no yeah i i but yeah uh good point though about it being one of those rare movies that is based on a play that actually really stands alone as a, as a film in, in the film version. Um, well, you talked about everybody uh, in the movie disagreeing, but having empathy, which it's interesting because even, so it starts off with 11 of the men agree and Henry Fonda is the one dissenter saying not guilty. But even though all the men are picking guilty, they're all doing it for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And it's those different reasons, those different ways of thinking is how they all start to connect with each other. And most importantly, that's the main point I wanted to start with was uh, it's all surface level assumptions and thinking with emotion. I mean, you've got a couple people with, you got one person with racial prejudices against the defendant. You have one guy who's got an internal, um, that's uh, juror number three played by, uh, um, Oh Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, I wrote God, it down. I, wrote... I, I had to, I wanted to write him down. I think he's in The Exorcist. He is. He's yeah. the, te- he's the uh-huh. detective in The Exorcist. But he he has, you find out later in the movie, um, an internal struggle with himself and his relationship with his son that comes out. Um, you know, you have one guy who's just personal. It's played by Jack Warden. He just wants to get out of there and go to a baseball game. Even when he finally changes from guilty to not guilty, it's just because, fine, whatever, I just want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. He never he never cares in the entire movie. 
And I kind of like that they don't give him, uh, they they just are okay leaving it that way because there are people like that that are never going to have that strong of conviction. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even the guy, juror number 12, the uh, the marketing guy. Oh, he was great. Yeah. I mean, he's a he's kind of a dope and he's easily manipulated, but you see, you can tell when he's just there to get out of there and then when the gears start turning a little bit, but it really comes down to most of those guys were not being objective. It was all preconceived notions and surface level thinking. And that is a lot of times why we don't get along. Everything's, what's my initial emotion? And you just stay there. Mm-hmm. And it shows Henry Fonda slowly makes everybody think a little bit more. And some of it's a little silly. Though at the, you know, at the end of the movie, the whole thing with the, the mark on the nose, the glasses is a little far-fetched. But, you know, there's... he he creates reasonable doubt with every single person in there. And it's just, if you just stop and think a little bit, maybe you can empathize with this, this defendant more. And what I liked a lot about, um, Henry Fonda and, um, the way he carried that performance and the character himself, just even he he was so good at giving every man the floor to say what they had to say like it's such a great example of even if you don't agree with what um someone's saying you can at least give them you know the the space and the respect um to engage in a conversation and 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 hear what they have to say the people that don't respect that space and who do interrupt and insult and i mean they quickly you know they're their argument has a lot of holes poked into it. but Well, to your point, Henry Fonda never leads with his emotions. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter that everyone's getting um, hostile with him or excessively emotional with him or calling him names. And, you know, he never leads with his emotions with those guys. He just calmly makes his point. And, and that's, you know, when you, it, there's a lot to be said for, yeah, yeah, coming into something with like a cool head. Yeah. And, Leaving the hubris at the door, showing some humility. I mean, at one point, I think it's, I believe it's Jack, I can't remember if it's Jack Warden or Ed Begley Sr. who said, I'm entitled to my opinion. Well, that's one of the two phrases that drives me crazy, especially when we're talking about something like this. You are entitled to your opinion. Who who cares? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't mean your opinion's right. The other one that drives me nuts is, that's just the way I was raised. It's like saying I can't think for myself, oh. which also goes back to, I guess you can reel that back to American History X. Yeah. You know, what if Edward Norton's character is, well, it's just the way I raised. Well, it's, it's wrong. Yeah. But entitled to my opinion, one of them says that. Like, it, like that means anything. It doesn't mean anything. There's a, there is a, an, a performance and a, a scene in 12 Angry Men that I think might be my favorite, which is uh, juror number nine. The actor is Joseph Sweeney. That the old guy? He's the old man. What was with those close-ups on his face? Like, Lacey and I were cracking up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Especially with that lighting and the black and white, too. It was, um, yeah, kind of intense. But he, when he has to explain why an elderly man might potentially fabricate their story just to get a little attention and he's able to lay it out so clearly like what could have led this man to get to this point like he he was relating to the witness in some way and saying like i myself as an as an old man like you don't know my story but my story could be very similar to the witness who were we may convict this 
this boy based off of his testimony that we don't even know is accurate or not. And um, I, I thought that was such a like it was a really moving scene for me and I really liked the way it was delivered and I think in the way he captured the whole room's attention with that was like um it was really powerful well that was a great example and the other example um I really liked I I mean I did I I love that because there's two examples of that where these guys are not connected to um, being an old man and they're not connected to being a poor kid from the slum. And it's easy when you're not in that situation to dismiss those people. And then, um, when, uh, Jack Klugman says, I grew up in a slum, you know, I grew up just like this kid did. And not only did he provide the empathy that these guys wouldn't have had otherwise, but then he even helped with the knife display where look, look, people yeah. from that part of the town wouldn't have stabbed this way. They'd have stabbed this way. Don't dismiss people because they have a certain background because you can still – you can learn something from anybody. I mean, that's there's this is why we fit, we're finishing with this movie because there's so many lessons in 12 Angry Men. Yeah. There's so much to take away from it. But life is complex and people are complex. And I think a lot of our anger and hostility come, comes from simple-mindedness. And look, I've been guilty of it. Mm-hmm. It happens. But – we have to learn from that. I, I see stuff sometimes. I see people say something. My first reaction is to be angry. But you have to take a step back sometimes and really look at everything like these guys finally do in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I um, it is, it is one of those movies that, you know, I think is shown in, in school to, like, shape young minds for a good reason. Um, for many, I mean, if anything, it just goes to show you how you should approach debating with people through the rest of your life. So if you're if you're going to have a strong conviction about something, you need to be ready to state your case. Um, but you also, you know, need to keep keep uh, an open mind and to listen to um to all uh, you know uh when someone is presenting uh w- when someone is coming at uh, approaching a topic with and their open heart and uh, a clear mind i think it goes it goes a long way so 12 angry men again one of the greatest films ever made 100 percent round tomatoes nominated for best picture best director best screenplay one none of them which is kind of odd looking back on it now yeah i know so that's going to do it. I hope we've changed some hearts and minds with these movie picks. I hope you can see the world a little differently now, and I hope you can go out there and find somebody you don't agree with and just sit down and talk to them and find out what you do agree with. And also just revisit these films. I would recommend each and every one of these films on this list uh, even like American History X, which I had a lot of trepidation and like fear around watching that movie. Like I, I I'm, I'm very, uh, in the end, I'm, I'm grateful I watched it because I think I got a lot out of it. Well, that leads us to the end of this episode. And as always, we're going to give you a couple recommendations. Uh, I'll go first this time. So we talked about Denzel last time. We talked about Denzel beginning of this episode. Well, I'm going to talk about Denzel again. Uh, 1995's Devil in the Blue Dress. Uh, really cool movie. It's uh, uh, early, uh, mid, mid-century 
noir film where uh, Denzel Washington's living in, in L.A. and gets pulled into a, a murder mystery, a crime mystery. Uh, and he's not a cop. He's not a detective. He's just a guy that gets pulled in. Um, love the aesthetics of the film, the, uh, the colors, uh, all the old cars, the old buildings, the old clothes. You really not 100% what's happened until the end of the movie. Uh, if you just if you like the old noir, like Humphrey Bogart films, it's really that vibe, but with Denzel. So I give it a two. I think it's streaming somewhere. Devil in a Blue Dress. Hmm. Thank you for that. Um, my pick, I, I swear I already came with this movie in mind, and I thought the time it was kind of funny that we were talking about Top Gun. Um, and, uh, I, I picked the, the film witness, which is the movie that Kelly McGillis was fantastic. Movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. So good. <laughs> um, I've, I, uh, rewatched it, uh, this last weekend with my mom and, uh, Micah who fell asleep, but he, he's already seen the movie, so I'm not holding it against him. Um, but yes, uh, anyway, Kelly McGillis was, had after wrapping Top Gun went to prepare or work on Witness, but then had to come back for some reshoots uh, or added scenes for Top Gun. So there's kind of some fun movie trivia there for you. And you can you can probably It was the sex scene. (laughs) You can peep the little tricks they did to try and hide how both she and Tom Cruise that their appearance had changed a bit. But uh Witness is directed by Peter Weir. I I recognize that name and I wanted to see if I'd seen any of his other films. And um, he directed The Truman Show, which is also a, a really special film. Um, and uh, stars Harrison Ford, Kelly McGillis, as I already said, uh, Lucas Haas, Danny Glover. Um, it takes place in Amish country uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, the mother and son... Uh, are going to Baltimore to visit her sister, and um, uh, on in their travels, the son, played by Lucas Haas, who became a later member of Leonardo DiCaprio's Pussy Posse, um, but this is before those days, and he's just an adorable little child, Amish child. That must be why he's in the beginning of Inception. <laughs> must be. He um, he witnesses a murder, and Harrison Ford ends up, you know, getting involved as the the detective on the case and ends up escaping to back to Amish country with uh, the mother and child and hides away because at this point he's, you know, his his life is in danger because it's all one big conspiracy. I won't spoil too much more. Just want to say um, uh, that I, I definitely give this movie a three. I I think even though the score, the 80s score is a bit it's a three. hard to take it's a, it's at times, a total three. but it's a total three. Uh, it's just such a romantic movie in a very surprising way is what I'll say, as well as very thrilling and, um, and just, uh, just a great story. So give it a three. Of all the ways I want to die, falling into a corn silo is 100% not one. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't look pleasant. So uh, we're going to be back with a few more in February. Uh, we got our ideas. So we'll have those out soon. But that's going to do it for this one. So for the Marquee Spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey. I'm Chelsea Burnett. We'll see you. Thanks for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland with music composed and produced by Josh Colopy and cover art created by Taylor Ingle. 
Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for updates on new episodes. And if you like the show, please write a review and share with others.